Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to another podcast episode on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Ron Winslow. I'm a former longtime medical and science reporter and editor at the Wall Street Journal, now a freelance journalist with a focus on medicine and other topics. My guest today is Dr. Elaine Shatner, journalist, physician, cancer survivor, and clinical associate professor of medicine at Weill Cornell Medical College in New York. She's with us to talk about her new book entitled From Whispers to Shouts, The Ways We Talk About Cancer. It's a fascinating account that traces how the public perception and portrayal of cancer in our conversations, our media, and our culture has evolved over the past century and a half amid major advances in treatment and prevention and amid the rise of the internet and social media. Elaine, welcome to our broadcast podcast. Thanks so much, Ron. Um, so before we get into details, you have a pretty interesting bio. Could you tell us a little more about yourself? Sure. Um, well, I'm a physician, as you said, and uh, I'm a writer. This is my first book, and I'm, I had cancer when I was practicing oncology um, in 2002. I was diagnosed with breast cancer, and uh, at the time, I guess I didn't think that was such a big deal. I was relatively lucky. No one with cancer is lucky, but I had an early stage case that was removed, and I had a little bit of chemotherapy, um, and I I continued working during my cancer treatment. Um, what happened later was that I had some other health problems, um, which really uh, got in the way of my practicing medicine. And I, in particular, I became depressed, which I've written about elsewhere. And that basically killed my medical career because in the 2000s, people were not open about doctors' mental health. And um, that really um, destroyed me, the, the loss of my career in as an oncologist and a hematologist, a blood and cancer specialist. And so I, w- wanting to put 
that behind me, I went to journalism school at Columbia, which I saw as an opportunity. And there, I guess I became very interested in how people who are not doctors find information about cancer. Um, I grew up in a physician's home. I have a family of doctors. And basically, it never occurred to me to, to make a medical decision based on anything I heard or read outside of textbooks or doctor's, doctor's offices. And what I began to be aware of, and this also was uh, amplified, if you will, by social media taking off around to, in the 2000s, was just, I became aware of how much people were hearing and making decisions based on hearsay and based on things that I consider to be untrue. And then I, I guess I, I dove into cancer journalism and in about 10 years ago, I was interacting with a lot of editors and other journalists, and I was also attending a lot of conferences with patient advocates. And I perceived um, what I call a perception gap. That's between but what my former colleagues, oncologists, were saying about cancer and its treatability and what journalists were saying. And um, I thought that that gap was really important because I realized people were making decisions because they didn't think cancer could be treated, they didn't think it could be effectively screened for, and so forth. And I thought it was important to not just, not simply correct information, which is not my position as a journalist, so much as to understand why misinformation about cancer uh, spreads. And so that led me into a history of the awareness campaigns in North America and the topic of my book. For sure, I, I think uh, you could you could add historian to your resume, given uh, how deep you uh, put you know you plunged yourself into the history here. Um, I was just uh, you know really impressed. I think you have eighty or eighty five pages of citations in your in your book, so this was uh, as uh, meticulously researched as anything you could imagine. So, um, I mean, you sort of said why you decided to write about it, but. You, but how did your experience as a cancer patient, a cancer survivor, affect how you approach the book? Sure. Well, when I was diagnosed um, in 2002, I, I remember that a nurse came to my room in the hospital. She was a mastectomy nurse who represented a group called Breach to Recovery, which I report on in the book that was founded in the 50s by Therese Lasser. And... Um, she, asked, she said, would it be okay if someone from Reach to Recovery calls you when you're at home? And I said, sure, I didn't want to be uncooperative. And she gave me um, something to squeeze, like to, to exercise my arm after the mastectomy, the surgery. And she gave me some suggestions. When a woman called, which was uh, at the time Reach for Recovery was affiliated with the American Cancer Society. And a very nice woman from another state called and said, hello, you know, I, I was at home then recovering. And she offered, you know, to, she asked me if I wanted to join a support group and so forth. And I didn't want any of that. I was a physician. I was working. I worked through my chemo because of, uh, well, for a number of reasons. But anyway, I, I think it was partially pride that led me not to want to interact with other patients, but it was also ignorance that I think I, I didn't realize how much support I would need, or foolishness maybe. And so I didn't opt to hear from other patients. 
um, as I write in the book, at the time, um, I was familiar with Susan, Dr. Susan Love's um, breast book, uh, which was the so-called Bible <laughs> uh, for breast cancer patients at the time. It was in, I think it's third edition. I had had friends and patients who had used that book and found that it helped them. But I didn't even refer to that. I, I just went with the data and what my, my colleagues who, you know, I was lucky that I was able to get in right away with, you know, a good oncologist. But the point is that I didn't want to read or hear more about my condition. I felt that I knew what my choices were. I knew what the percentages were. And I just sort of went with the information I already had. And it was later on that I realized how important those uh, advocacy groups and other if you will, unconventional sources of information are for patients' decision-making, how those can really make or break uh, survival. <laughs> because if people get good advice that can direct them toward you know, a good trial or a good doctor, and if they get bad advice, the opposite. For sure. So, so I guess that explains a little bit, but I'd like to uh, about one other thing that's interesting to read an entire book about cancer and not hear from any scientists except for yourself, perhaps, uh, uh, or or doctors, was uh, an intriguing. I mean, how did you, did you, was that part of it, part of your mission from the beginning to, uh, you know, to just look at the way people outside of the clinic and outside of the research lab uh, talk about this disease? Yeah, I guess I had written a number of technical pieces um, about cancer therapy. I also I wrote a lot about uh, cancer screening. For um, I, I was I had a featured I, I was like a I was on the Huffington Post for a while, and I had pieces that uh, Cancer Today and Scientific American, and then I was I was um, writing for Forbes for several years, and I just I became not only tired of the technical writing, but I realized at some point that I couldn't keep up with it. I'd, just as doctors now have trouble keeping up with the technical literature, I don't think, I think it's basically impossible for a human cancer journalist to have a good sense of all the new drugs and also the, the diagnostic tools that doctors have now to direct patients to the new drugs, to, you know, the quality, there's a lot of there are many quality issues about the diagnostic tests, genetic tests, tests for uh, other kinds of molecules, proteins, and those match patients to new cancer drugs. And the, the new cancer drugs have long names. They have two names, generic and brand names. The data are very confusing. Uh, there are many trials ongoing. And I realized that as much as I enjoyed and wanted to cover breast cancer drugs, and I was doing that pretty well for a while, it became, um, I, I just saw the future that it would be impossible for me to accurately report on those things. And so I, I wanted to shift gears, um, I guess for fun. And, you know, as, as a new career in, in my um, older age, I wanted to do something different. I mean, as you said, I have a lot of references. I spent a lot of time in archives and that was interesting, meeting librarians. I mean, unfortunately I couldn't go back for a few things I would have liked to have captured. Uh, due to COVID, but you know that was an adventure. Really, writing the book, going to places. I I tried to uncover stories that people hadn't heard about um, that are relevant today. Well, I hope we'll get to a couple of those. In fact, let's uh, let's sort of get into some of the book details. You know, obviously, you chronicled a huge change in how 
how our conversations about cancer have changed uh, or have evolved. Um, but I was really struck in the beginning, in the first several chapters, actually, how familiar the language was, how it's almost embedded in the in our society's DNA, some of these issues about the war on cancer, about, you know, finding it early um, to get cured and 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 uh, even some of the uh, the examples of fraud that you bring in, there were, there's just sort of a significant familiarity and a time when there was no science and no, um, you know, I mean, there weren't even hospitals at the beginning of of uh, your narrative. So, were you surprised by that, or would you agree with that? I was surprised in the sense that I had heard that people didn't talk about cancer until modern times. And I think in writing, in researching the book, what I saw was that actually cancer was reported on significantly, um, even in the 1800s in newspapers in New York City, for instance. What was different was that very few people revealed their own cases. So now, you know, largely but not entirely thanks to social media, many, many people disclose that they have cancer many celebrity, and I get into that later in the book, but early on, there was public discussion of cancer. It was very much feared, and it was very little was known about it. Um, and I, I guess I was interested also in the early fundraising about cancer, and there, um, 10 years ago, in the, it, there was a lot of uh, criticisms of cancer fundraising. A lot of the criticisms were directed toward the Coleman organization, Susan Coleman, for the cure in particular, and there was talk about pinkwashing. But more generally, there was concern about, um, there were criticisms of a sort of hypocrisy in cancer fundraising and also um, inefficiency in gala events and marches. And the idea was that there was so much awareness, we don't need awareness and I went back to the 1800s, and I, I discovered these reports of events. Like, for example, there was a small hospital that no one had ever heard of called the New York Skin and Cancer Hospital, which opened in 1883 with five beds. And these women, they had a ladies' auxiliary, which organized what they called a kermesse, which was a spring festival to raise money for this primitive cancer hospital. And they... Uh, they held it at a branch of Delmonico's, the famed restaurant, and they basically a bunch of Knickerbockers all got drunk, and they had fortune telling, and they had puppet shows during the daytime for children. They had dancing at night, and it was a very um, lavish affair. And they raised something like seven thousand dollars, netting over three thousand for this tiny cancer hospital. And I thought that was interesting. And and what I think may be, and what I um, hypothesized basically in the book is that by cloaking the topic of cancer in pleasantries, that the hospitals and doctors and researchers are able to raise money in a way that um, they couldn't otherwise do. So nowadays, like there's a group, uh, you know, a hundred years later, I became interested in MedUp, which is a very dark uh, themed group. Um, which held die-ins for metastatic breast cancer. And I, I'm a supporter of the group. I found it very interesting. It was modeled after ACT UP, the AIDS group. But that group basically failed to draw supporters and or people even attending the die-ins. And I think that's because 
there's an appeal. People like to walk and to race, to bicycle, to dance, you know, and all these things for cancer as a cause. And they like the bonding of that. They like the experience of helping and, and, and having fun with other people who care about a cause. And so I guess going back, I found that cancer was discussed, but it was it was really just in, a, in the context of fundraisers and building a hospital and not about individuals affected. It, yeah, it, that was the, there were so many fundraisers and so, you know, that you chronicle in the first uh, three or four chapters. It was really uh, fascinating. And, you know, and, you know, I grew up in the 60s, 50s and 60s. And, you know, the, you know, I, I'm sure my mother went door to door collecting for the American Cancer Society, you know, so it's sort of this part of this continuum that uh, in various forms continues uh, clearly uh, today. And uh, I mean, the other uh, thing that kind of one other, um, among other things that jumped out at me was, uh, I think you begin chapter two with a quote from the, <clears throat> with a headline from the New York Times saying, rich women wage a war on cancer. And that was in, 20, in 1913. And I think, you know, I mean, I've been a journalist for 50 years, and I associate the war on cancer with President Nixon in 1971 or two, whenever that was. And yet, even that sort of was, you know, went way back in in the history uh, that you have dug up. Yeah. I mean, the language of war against cancer goes back at least till then. And um, I think there are a lot of misconceptions, uh, both about the origins of that language and about the... Um, meaning of that language. And there's also a certain, um, there was in some of these conversations or some of these reports that you categorize, you you have accumulated and uh, presented uh, a determination or insistence that that this disease could be cured. It was uh, this sort of a, uh, an uninformed naivete, I guess. I mean, we still have that uh, with us as well. But uh, that was another thing that there was no science there at all, and yet people thought <clears throat> we're going to uh, we're going to beat this. Yeah, well, I think that's very true that the science wasn't there and the medicine wasn't there either. Um, so a hundred years ago, and I might argue even fifty years ago, there were very few effective medicines to treat cancer, and so. When they started the first awareness campaign in North America, and they, they and women and I described that you know spread this message of cancer's curability, that it should be treated early, that people shouldn't fear surgery. You could argue that I and I would argue that it was premature, and part of people's reluctance now to accept and to to understand and and maybe appreciate that cancer can be treated in many cases, is that there was so much hype about cancer treatments by the cancer uh, society and by experts long ago. So even in the 1960s, this is something that really surprised me, and I, di I didn't know this as an oncologist. In the 1960s and even into the 1970s, one out of three women diagnosed with breast cancer would died within five years of the diagnosis. Wow. I, I didn't and, I know that either. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's horrible and something like half of men with colon cancer, and that includes like what was thought to be early stage, died from colon cancer. You know, now if you if you have an early stage disease, 
you're very likely to live for a long time after removal of the tumor, either breast or colon or prostate cancer for that matter, and several other tumor types. But back then, you know, there were what's called adjuvant extra treatment was unusual um, after surgery for cancer. A lot of surgeons were skeptical of the chemotherapy treatments, the early chemotherapies, and they were skeptical with reason because <laughs> those drugs were harsh and not is uh, brutal in a way um, in that they did, in general, they were not targeted the way modern cancer, the newer cancer agents are. And so they tended to uh, harm the whole body as opposed to the cancer cells disproportionately. And so my point is that a hundred years ago, as much as people were saying, oh, early, you know, early treatment is good, have it removed, doctors had few ways of removing it effectively because often the cancer had spread a little bit before um, people had the courage to go to a doctor and have it you know, removed. And many people just avoided surgeons altogether, as I write in the book, because they were so afraid of the surgery. As you know, people used to have very large operations for cancer. People used to have what were called radical mastectomies for even small breast cancers. Um, people had you know, much of their intestines removed for colon cancer. They had very, you know, large operations and often they had, and radiation was very hard to take in the, you know, through the mid um, 20th century. It's not that it's easy now, but surgery and radiation carried much more risk then than it does now. Right. Yeah. yeah. My, mo my mother was treated for breast cancer with radiation in, um, I would say the seventies. Like anyway, she lived another 25 years, but, um, so she lived until she was 90, but her last 15 years or so were really compromised by the damage that radiation did to her lungs. Oh, so just, sorry. Just that, uh, I mean, she was did fine, but, you know, it was, it, 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 it is a measure of how, an, another measure of, of how things are evolving and improving for, for much better. I'm sorry to hear that um, about your mom. I, I would say that, one one point I make toward the end of the book is one mode of progress is um, a reduction of care. So there are trials now for a lot of cancer types, and in fact, for radiation in, in breast cancer, there was a study published last week that it could be avoided in many cases. And I think um, as doctors become more comfortable uh, giving less toxic treatments and giving less treatment when it's not necessary, you know, we may see better outcomes in the long term. I, I, yeah. It's hard to get clinical trials to show that, though, isn't it? <laughs> well, I actually, mean, I think we could. It's hard to get those trials paid for. There you go. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I was fascinated by the structure of of your whole book, really, in, in these sort of interesting, I sort of called them vignettes, vignettes to myself that were, you know, that charted your, that were sort of you put together in, as a, a narrative, but you would read one and then you would shift scenes to another one. And I, I sort of thought that you, you said you, you have an audio books version coming out, I think. Uh, but um, it's, it struck me that Peter Coyote, the narrative for Ken Burns uh, documentaries ought to be, ought to be doing your audio because of the way these vignettes are structured. So anyway, I think I would like to sort of flesh a couple out, sort of uh, rapid fire in a way, 
just name a couple of either names or a, or a topic that was in a couple of those vignettes, and maybe you could just give us a pretty short view of you know of the you know put them put them in the context of of the book and the and the first one I is in your first chapter and it's Ulysses S. Grant. I mean, a former president. Um, you know, how, when did you find that? I mean, it was so fascinating. There was quite a lot of attention around him trying to finish his memoir of his, uh, you know, before he died. Yeah, so Grant's case, I learned about in reading um, The Dread Disease by uh, Jim Patterson, who's an emeritus professor of history at Brown, actually. And who was kind enough to meet with me once, I think in 2014. Um, yeah, and it's a fascinating case, I guess, because it counters the idea that no one talked about cancer. Um, Grant's case was covered in the newspapers. There were uh, journalists like paparazzi, basically, walking back and forth by his house on East 66th Street, not far from where I live. And supposedly he wasn't told he had cancer. The doctors used terms like epithelial to cloak the nature of his disease, but he understood it was malignant than that he would die. He took elixirs, including cocaine water, and um, he went upstate for peace and quiet to write his memoirs, where he was hounded by photographers and journalists, uh, and he died in 1885. Uh, and his, with having completed his um, memoir with the help of Mark Twain, his friend, uh, and he described, you know, journalists actually entering his home to talk with him while he was dying from cancer. And uh, he also described the sympathy he received letters from people of all backgrounds. Uh, he talks about Confederates and Union people and um, the Protestant, the Catholic, and the Jew, all sending notes of um, support for him as he was dying from cancer. And I guess the idea that he expressed was that cancer was sort of a unifier. Um, and that comes up later in the book where there's there was a lot of sympathy for people who had cancer later on. And I, I really, um, as much as people had political differences, I think it was a topic around which people could unite. And how about Babe Ruth? How Babe Ruth? <laughs> yeah, I learned. That was crazy. Yeah. So Babe Ruth died of a rare kind of cancer called a nasopharyngeal carcinoma. He died in 1948. And um, I chose his case because first he was a man who was known to have cancer. I tried in the cases that I um, sort of flesh out that I gave a lot of attention to in the book. Um, I, I chose them because they were representative of an issue. And here it was that um, he was basically a celebrity who had cancer. And um, I also found that he, his case was, and, and it was a time when very few people opened up about having cancer. Uh, newspapers described that he was in Memorial Hospital in New York City, which was obviously a place where people went when they had cancer. It was known for that. So everyone understood he had cancer, but no one said that he had cancer exactly. And uh, he had a, there was a contemporary biographer who quoted him as saying that he understood the experimental nature of the treatments he was receiving. And so that tells me that I think he did know he had cancer. And he got an early form of chemotherapy. Uh, I think a lot of people know because of the emperor of all maladies about the children in Boston who were, you know, in the 1940s who um, uh, Dr. Farber gave uh, children very early 
uh, anti-metabolite drugs, um, such as Jimmy, as in the Jimmy Fund. That boy was treated with a, he had lymphoma and he lived to an old age. Anyway, Babe Ruth was treated with related drugs. And as I report, one of his doctors in New York City actually reported on the drug and his treatment of a celebrity patient, he described Babe Ruth basically without using his name. And it was reported on the front page of the Wall Street Journal, upper right. <laughs> I said, well, sure. I, and it was September 11th, 1947. And I actually tried, I have a copy of that article, but it's, it's not a good quality article, so it wouldn't serve as a figure of the book. I wanted to use it, but I was fascinated by this case. Also, that when he was dying, he went to see his own um, biopic, basically, and uh, he said he thought it was great. But uh, I, I should say also, in writing the book, it was with cases like Babe Ruth's that I kind of had fun. Like I watched the Babe Ruth story. I learned about Babe Ruth. I, you know, I, I don't usually watch much baseball, but um, in exploring the characters, so to speak, I, I got to learn about other uh, topics. That was fun. It was sort of a sidestep. Nat King Cole. Ugh. So Nat King Cole, as you know, was a very popular singer. And I didn't know uh, that he had had lung cancer. And he died a few weeks after surgery um, in the early 1960s. And uh, his case was publicized in the end when he was admitted to a hospital in California. And the hospital reported on how many letters of support that Cole received. And I chose his case in part because he was a man of color, he was, he was black. And there were very few um, disclosures, if you will, of cancer in people of color. There, there had been, through the American Cancer Society and some other organizations, uh, fundraising efforts. And in the 60s and somewhat in the 50s, there were uh, awareness efforts in communities of color. But there were very few celebrities of color who had shared their diagnoses, and he was among the first who was known. His case, I think, is important because it also reflects um, the concern about lung cancer at the time. So in the 60s, this, you know, this was when the Surgeon General's report came out, and there was so much controversy even then about the link between tobacco and uh, lung cancer and that whole uh, fiasco, if you will, and the, the reluctance of the public and doctors to recognize that link um, occupies a significant part of uh, several chapters of the book. Right. Yeah, that, for sure. That's, I mean, that is, uh, well, let's talk a little, well, I want to I go mention a name that uh, probably few people uh, would be familiar with, which is Lorna Dune Burks. <laughs> okay. Um, so Lorna um, Burks was a, um, a literary agent who had a cancer of the womb in the 1940s. And she wrote um, with basically a memoir called I Die Daily that was published by her husband after she died um, around 1946. And it's a really depressing book. No doubt. Yeah. I describe it in my book as the the grandmother of all cancer blots. I mean, she has like chapters called like ambulance at the door, the chat the importance of jelly donuts, and she describes 
her feelings uh, while receiving cancer treatment um, and then dying from cancer. Um, she describes feeling that she's a burden to her family. Uh, she decided she she feels very um, embarrassed by the costs of her treatment. Um, she learns that she has a caregiver who's a Dominican woman who she realizes received asked for her for, for um, money from her uncle from the, that is the caregiver's uncle to help pay the medical bills. Uh, Burke's family sells the car to pay for her treatments. And she feels a lot of guilt about that, and she feels guilty that she didn't go for care early enough before that she, when she has some symptoms. Um, she feels that, that that is her fault, that she has such advanced cancer. But then she goes back and forth. She equivocates in the book, kind of the way blog, bloggers might, well, this or that. And she says, well, you know, I heard my in my husband's family, she says there was an aunt and she had a mastectomy in San Francisco, 30, and then she died 30 years later of breast cancer and in pain. So maybe it's not true that early detection helps. And she, she's, it's a very depressing book. And I guess I wrote about it because of her openness, which was so unusual at the time. And I think the only reason the book was published because it was because her husband was an editor. And as I describe in the book, you know, nowadays anyone basically can post a video about their cancer ideas, their, you know, that their their experiences, their you know information. Back then, the only people who could really write about having cancer were journalists, authors, you know, people who had platforms, so to speak, and then celebrities, if they chose to disclose that they had cancer, would have their stories shared because it was a public interest. So newspaper editors would run those stories because it would you know people were interested. But for the average person, you couldn't just share your cancer story. And that's why I chose hers, because she elected to be open about her experiences and her feelings, her shame, she reports. And to some extent, I gather, given how you describe it, it's almost a precursor to the much more uh, commonplace uh, descriptions that, you know, that have been fueled by access to social media and so forth uh, more recently. I mean, she dies in a lot of pain, and she describes that. Throughout the, it's it's really a painful read, and I, I was intrigued by the book, um, which you know, as I wrote, was not a bestseller. I think it sells now because people study the book, but you know, it, it would be hard to understand why someone might choose to read the book, and if they did, they might choose not to get to receive cancer treatments because here she she ended up dying and going through a lot of pain, at significant cost. Uh, let's try a couple more. I, this seems to be kind of interesting. So. Um, I'm pairing, pairing these two, Susan Sontag and Rose Kushner. <laughs> All right. Well, I mean, S Susan Sontag is, you know, standard, um, medical humanities reading and a woman I admired for her writing. Um, I, I had read quite a bit of Sontag before I went to journalism school because I, I enjoyed her essays. Um, illness as metaphor, as you know, is essentially about illness not being a metaphor, as Sontag writes in the in the first pages. Um, what surprised me about Sontag is that she decries the battle language surrounding cancer and the use of metaphors, but the way that she handled her own cancer diagnosis, which she hardly mentions in her writing, was 
by going for the harshest treatments. She was very, she chose very aggressive treatments against some of her doctor's advice. And this is well chronicled by her son, David Reef, who has a book called Swimming in a Sea of Death or something like that. And he, you know, so Sontag had a breast cancer in the 70s. And although by then, you know, many, some women were choosing lumpectomies and in Sontag's circle, who were a group of very well-educated people, and she was in New York City, she could have gone for a lumpectomy. She opted for what she called a Halstead, but that's a maximum, um, basically a very radical mastectomy. And then she went for experimental immune treatments um, that were not provided by doctors in the United States. And uh, she, according to her son, credited her survival with what he says was stage four disease with her uh, grit, so to speak. And she believed that her wits, that her decisions had enabled her and her willingness to take hard treatments enabled her survival. And ultimately, she later got, uh, she developed a, a radio, um, the cancer of the womb, uterine cancer, which can be a complication of treatment. And then, and that was treated with radiation. And then she developed in her early 70s something called myelodysplastic syndrome, which is a pre leukemia, which then was absolutely incurable. And she went for an experiment for basically a, a bone marrow transplant. Doctors in New York City, including at Memorial, said they could not give it to her because she was older and it was unlikely to work. She flew to Seattle, where they have a major transplant center, and she, against her own doctors in New York's advice, she had this transplant, and then she died some months later. And so I just think it's interesting that she was so, like some of the other writers I describe in the book, Rachel Carson among them, she was sort of, you know, because she's a writer and intellectual, you tend to think, oh, well, maybe they would take a sort of palliative or soft approach to cancer treatment, but she did not. She, I argue that she battled her cancer. She may not have liked the language of, 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 of battling, but she, she chose the, the harshest therapies. Rose Kushner, at the same time in the 70s, was a journalist um, who elected to have a lumpectomy. She basically did, Rose Kushner was very important in the history of cancer advocacy and breast cancer in particular because she was a journalist who basically did her own research in the 70s to decide on her treatments, and she drew her conclusions, and she wrote about those, uh, what her treatment recommendations were in the Washington Post. And a lot of doctors really thought it was wrong for her to do that, but she she was kind of pushy, and um, she, she advocated that for herself and for other women that they should be offered lumpectomy instead of mastectomy, and that they should choose that. And she, yeah, she was a character. Uh, I wanted to ask you about Larry Kramer because I, 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 I just feel, well, I'm curious to what you found and think about how important. Um, I, adored, I adored Larry Kramer. I just was, I was in, when I was practicing, uh, when I was a fellow in, in hematology and blood diseases and oncology, I had supposedly a patient of mine told me that there was a file about me in ACT UP which was the, at least the second organization that he had founded. It was an AIDS activist group. And as you know, he was an outspoken advocate for um, people with AIDS. And 
I perceive that, you know, from the time of the 80s when I was in training in medical school and as a resident doctor and a fellow until through now that the AIDS activists had, have had a profound impact on advocacy in other areas and initially in the area of cancer and people's, um, I, I believe that the AIDS activists, the AIDS activism of the 80s led cancer patients at the time and their their and to just be more outspoken about their needs and also to be more visible so a big it used to be that people were um with many of the um fewer people with cancer admitted that they had it openly the aids activists made their they decided to basically stand up for themselves or in the case of diane's lie down for themselves by being as in your face as possible and causing trouble, if you will. Uh, that was the mode of ACT UP. And I think the cancer patients took note of that. And part of it was competitive, you know, as more money went to AIDS research, which is interesting in itself. I mean, I think part of why AIDS research, sadly, why it got so much funding in the late 80s was because people were afraid of it spreading, whereas people were not so afraid of cancer spreading. And that's a very selfish uh, viewpoint and that's rarely stated, but I think that was a factor in why there was so much funding for AIDS research in the late 80s. People were terrified of this disease, which at the time seemed to be fatal. Anyway, the cancer patients wanting more funding for themselves, and, and that's fine. I mean, I think in my view, all of this research is needed against each of these diseases, but they started becoming much more vocal. And so you have um, cancer patients who started you know, writing to Congress and lobbying and expressing the need for fast, not just more research, but faster research and more clinically focused research and more rapid access to drugs that might be beneficial. I can tell a story, if I will, about Larry Kramer. I had hoped to ask him for a blurb for my book, and I never had the opportunity because sadly he died during, uh, it was during the pandemic. Shortly before then, I was waiting to have my blood drawn at a hospital where I received care. And he was in the same waiting room. It was, um, there were just a few of us. And it was a small room and he was, he was, he has his act up hat on. I didn't have the nerve to ask him then. I, because I felt that it would be um, wrong for me in that, in the context of a private waiting area to say, hi, you know, I have a book coming out and taking advantage of that. So I just sort of gave him a little salute. And I said, you know, I want to thank you for all of your advocacy for patients with all kinds of conditions. And we had a conversation, which I very much enjoyed. And it was, and I don't feel that I should share it because it was a private conversation. And uh, anyway, I, I think the world of Strickland. I got a chance to talk to him a couple times in reporting. Uh, you know, back when I was early in my medical coverage at the Journal. But that's a great piece, great story. Uh, one last uh, quirky one, and then I want to get a couple other things, but uh, Kim Cattrall. So Kim Cattrall portrays Samantha in Sex in the City, um, and her story, if you will, uh, aired in the year after my cancer treatment. And uh, I was never, um, I mean, at the time I was working full-time and I hardly watched TV, but I guess I heard about this, so I watched some episodes. And then for my book, I, I looked into it. And I think if you 
is so what happens is in um she's one of the four central characters in Sex and the City. She gets breast cancer and she wears um she feels she, she recognizes that the chemotherapy she receives um has basically shut down her hormones and her sexuality. And she talks about that um on the show. And um the other thing and, and I think that was really important because very few doctors uh, talk about sexuality and cancer. She said that basically cancer, that the chemotherapy killed her sex drive. She encourages her lover to go to sleep with someone else. But the other thing is she asked one doctor, a man, um, what caused her cancer. And he talks about risk factors and he mentions lifestyle. And she gets very testy in response to that. And she says, lifestyle, what do you mean? You think, you know, it, it, she infers that he is insinuating that she caused her breast cancer by not having children, for instance, or by some habit of hers. And he steps down and talks about statistics, but he she gets really indignant about the implication that she might have, through her decision, you know, in general, Women who have more children are less likely to have breast cancer. And there are other risk factors um, and, uh, that may have played a role in her uh, fictional case. Regardless, she does not want anyone to suggest to her that she's responsible for her breast cancer. And I think that resonated with me because I know when I was diagnosed, I felt I worried that I was somehow responsible for my breast cancer through some decisions I had made in my life and the long hours I had worked and and other things. And I think a lot of people who have had cancer feel that, the, you know, don't want to be blamed for having disease and rightfully so, meaning it's no one's fault that they themselves have cancer. You know, it, there are many factors we don't understand that contribute to cancer risk. Um, and her case is really kind of poignant in that way. Um, because it was devastating to her, and the doctor couldn't couldn't relate. Well, there's so much to cover in your book, I have to say. I uh, but I wanted to uh, go to one more point that's a little more toward the end and toward the current things. But you know, as I mentioned, uh, you know, your your research covers a century and a half of of experience and conversation and cultural reporting on this disease, but it's really the major changes that have come both in terms of science and available treatments, as well as, you know, social media, the internet, and the ways that these conversations happen have all been in the last 25 years. And um, so you have this intriguing run-up, and then all of a sudden, almost an explosion of of new treatments and, um, you know, ways of bringing information or misinformation, you know, to patients and consumers, uh, all all in this last, um, just your know, very recent day, times. What what do you make of that? Well, I think it's true. <laughs> First of all, I mean, I can't get over how much progress there has been against cancer in my lifetime. And it's not that everyone can survive a cancer. A cancer, You know, unfortunately, there are still cancers that cannot be treated effectively. But the, the fraction, if you will, of cases that might benefit from treatment, of people who might benefit from receiving 
non-palliative care is growing by the months. And, and it's not just true for cancer, it's true for other diseases as well. But I think cancer is sort of um, ahead in, in the area of medical research, for, in part because there was so much concern about it um, earlier, you know, in the last century. Why I describe the, there's, what happened in the past 25 years is that cancer is, is a, it's not just about medical progress, but also about progress in computers, our abilities to communicate, data processing, um, and, and openness, awareness too. So that doctors can potentially um, see a patient, a person who has cancer, and within days, if not hours, have a sample evaluated to see if there's a current treatment that would benefit that patient. And the patient can communicate with other people and you know, check out the doctor and also what are their other options and then move forward with confidence that they're making an informed decision. And, and that, you know, you couldn't do that 30 years ago. <laughs> uh, so there are better treatments, but there are also ways, better ways of learning about treatments and applying in particular treatments to individuals. So, and I think people need to know that because unfortunately attitudes lag behind science. So I described this at the, you know, when I was practicing it took 20, 25 years before some advance in the lab would reach the clinic. The way that data moves forward now, the way that clinical trials might be carried out, we can get things into the clinic much faster. And so I think that, uh, and with less cost. So I think that, and I'm, I don't believe that everyone should be treated for cancer. There are people who, for whatever reason, they may have other diseases, they may be very old, they may not, you know, it's, they may have reasons why they don't want treatment, but for a healthy person with a cancer diagnosis, they should hear about progress. They should be made as aware as possible of all their options. And that's why I believe that awareness about cancer's treatability is a constructive force. And awareness of this you know, amazing revolution in cancer therapeutics is worth hearing about, worth knowing. And so, in part, what you're what you have chronicled is uh, is the trajectory of this disease running from a, from a death sentence to a treatable condition. And I guess one of your arguments is that people need to start to believe that. Well, thank you very much. What an interesting conversation and a fascinating book. Um, so, thank you very much for being on our podcast and uh, look forward to what's next. Well, thank you so much, Ron. Um, I enjoyed speaking with you.